presenting this month's special series, Focus on Men's Health. From cancer to heart disease to fertility, we're bringing you conversations on the latest in health issues that affect men. Testicular cancer is diagnosed in thousands of American men each year. What are the current and most effective treatment patterns for testicular cancer? And what are the most pressing issues of treatment for testicular cancer? And where can you guide your patients for more information following a diagnosis? Welcome to a special segment, Focus on Men's Health. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and our guest is Dr. Craig Nichols, Medical Director of Lymphoma and Testicular Cancer Research Program at the Robert W. France Cancer Research Center at Providence Portland Medical Center in Portland, Oregon. Dr. Nichols is an internationally respected expert on testicular cancer. Welcome, Dr. Nichols. Thanks for having me. We are discussing treatment options for testicular cancer and management of metastases. Dr. Nichols, which patient demographics are the most common in those with testicular cancer? Well, the patient demographics are actually quite interesting. It's a disease, obviously, of of young men, typically in their 20s and 30s, although we certainly see very young teenagers with the disease, and very occasionally we see folks in their 50s and even occasionally into their 60s. Uh, But the bulk of patients are in the 20 to 30 age group. And how many cases do you see a year? There are about 8,000 cases in the United States each year. Is that increasing, decreasing, staying the same? It's a number that it's a little hard to get the handle on, but in most westernized countries, the disease appears to be increasing for reasons we don't know entirely. It's a rare disease in people of African background or Asian background, but certainly Caucasian races and in countries that are dominantly white Caucasian, there seems to be an increasing incidence. And and what are the most common types of testicular cancers? Well, the two main types are seminoma and non-seminoma in young men. Occasionally, in older men, we see testicular lymphoma. And what's the difference in the seminoma versus non-seminoma? There are a few clinical differences in terms of treatment and some of the demographics. Seminoma tends to occur in men slightly older than patients with non-seminoma. Seminoma is exquisitely sensitive to radiation, and radiation has had a role in the management of the disease for many years, although that that role is declining somewhat nowadays. But they're both similarly very sensitive to chemotherapy, and in both settings, the vast majority of patients are cured. No matter which type that is, their prognosis, they're both good? Yes. If you take all comers in the United States, of that 8,000 newly diagnosed patients with testicular cancer, around 95% of them will ultimately be cured. What's the role of surgery, and does that differ depending on what type of tumor you have? Absolutely. The role of surgery is important, particularly in in non-seminoma. The diagnosis of almost all testicular cancer begins with removal of the affected testis. So we certainly see our urologic colleagues very involved at the time of diagnosis. In seminoma, that's about the only role that surgery has, and we don't use surgery for seminoma beyond orchiectomy. For non-seminoma, in the past, we frequently recommended initial uh, staging and removal of the retroperitoneal lymph nodes in order to establish the stage to remove the abdomen as an area 
of concern and to help define subsequent therapies. I think nowadays with better imaging and more effective chemotherapy, the primary retroperitoneal lymph node dissection has largely gone away. We still very much depend on expert surgeons to do post-chemotherapy node dissections in patients who have residual abnormalities after chemotherapy. And what about prophylactic contralateral evaluation or even surgical intervention? Well, we very rarely recommend that in the U.S. anyway. So the risk of developing a second primary testis cancer in so, uh, in the U.S. anyway, in someone who has testis cancer on one side, is about one a lifetime 1% to 2% risk. Doing testicular self-exam, we almost always find the second primary testis cancers at a very early stage. So at least in the U.S. and in North America, the standard is simply to watch the other side carefully. In some places in Europe, if someone has a primary testis cancer, they do do a contralateral stab biopsy to try to identify those patients who have what's called testicular interstitial neoplasia or TIN because those patients are at particular risk of developing a second primary down the line. And if they do see that, they usually recommend uh, radiation to that remaining testis. If you have just joined us, you are listening to a special segment, Focus on Men's Health. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and with me today is Dr. Craig Nichols, Medical Director of Lymphoma and Testicular Cancer Research at Providence Portland Medical Center in Portland, Oregon. Dr. Nichols is an internationally respected expert on testicular cancer. We are discussing treatment options for testicular cancer and management of metastases. Dr. Nichols, what type of testicular cancer has the worst prognosis? Of the two main subtypes, seminoma versus non-seminoma, non-seminoma has a slightly worse outcome. But again, it's a shade of difference, and we still cure the vast majority of patients with either subtype. There are certain subtypes of non-seminoma that seem to be particularly aggressive, but the Poor prognosis is much less related to the subtype rather than the extent of disease diagnosis. And in which of these types are the tumor markers helpful? Tumor markers are primarily helpful in non-seminoma. And in patients with disseminated non-seminoma, about 80% of patients will have elevation of their alpha-fetoprotein or HCG. Where do these tumors metastasize to? Well, the most common site of metastasis for a testis primary is the retroperitoneal lymph nodes, and that's the area of initial metastases in the initial evaluation. So uh, these patients almost always require abdominal imaging to decide whether or not they have abdominal extension of their disease. The next most common area is the parenchymal lung. Has the imaging techniques completely supplanted surgical intervention, as you mentioned with the retroperitoneal lymph node dissection? It depends on who you ask, but certainly we are rapidly moving away from an era of surgical staging. Even though the surgery has come a long way in terms of nerve-sparing techniques that allow antigrade ejaculation to occur, we no longer think that surgery is appropriate as a staging procedure. And both in Europe and most centers in North America, the primary lymph node dissection has gone the way of the dodo. And with the exception of uh, orchiectomy, 
The surgical intervention is just for staging. There is no therapeutic benefit for that? The primary retroperitoneal lymph node dissection, I think that is largely true. There have now been randomized comparisons of primary surgery versus even a single cycle of chemotherapy, and the the chemotherapy is more effective in preventing recurrence. And so for that and many other reasons, primary retroperitoneal lymph node dissections are fading as a modality. Do these patients usually present light? I think that that is a question that is an evolution. I think in most centers, as we track data, there has been a stage shift to earlier stages. I think this is partly an effect of awareness, partly maybe better access, but it seems we're seeing more patients with stage 1 disease, which is confined to the testis, and much many fewer patients with widespread, very extensive disease at the time of diagnosis. So if anything, and I think it's true, the stages are shifting to more favorable stages. If a patient has a testicular cancer and is undergoing surgery and possibly chemotherapy and radiation therapy, what can they expect in terms of side effects and other issues? It's dramatically different than it used to be. That perception still lives in the minds of many patients testicular cancer or otherwise who are facing chemotherapy is that there is a substantial dread of chemotherapy, particularly around the issues of nausea and vomiting and fatigue and many of the other symptoms that people so commonly associate with chemotherapy. But the reality is that with modern anti-nausea drugs and modern supportive care, the vast majority of people work through the time between their cycles of therapy, the short-term effects are very manageable and the the long-term effects for many people are negligible. So we have come an enormously long way in terms of supporting patients through what used to be very substantial and very disabling chemotherapy. What's the most common chemotherapeutic agent given now? Without a doubt, the most common and most effective agent is cisplatin which is a derivative of the heavy metal platinum. And coupled with that is the drug atopicide, and in most situations also with a third drug, bleomycin. How long have we had that cisplatinum around? Cisplatin has been around probably as a therapeutic since the early 1970s, but it took some time to discover the magnitude of its benefit and also a substantial amount of time to manage the toxicity appropriately. In patients who have done nicely with the treatment of testicular cancer, who follows them, the primary care physician or someone like yourself? That's a subject of a lot of debate on when a person should transition from particularly medical oncology on to primary care. I think part of the reluctance of the testis cancer community to transition them at a very early stage are the number of very subtle long-term side effects of both the disease and the treatment that have become apparent as we've had the good fortune of being able to follow these patients now for 20 and 30 years. And there is a a substantial incidence of metabolic syndrome in these patients. There's a higher incidence of, as we talked about previously, second cancers of the testis. There are some other cancers associated with testicular cancer, such as melanoma. And there are also hypogonadal states related to the orchiectomy and some of the other attributes of of testicular cancer patients. So there are a lot of non-cancer aspects of the disease that we think 
merit careful attention and careful reporting. And so my current practice is that I follow patients quite carefully for five years, and then I usually follow them for at least another five years in conjunction with their primary care doctors. And in most patients at around the 10-year mark, I say goodbye and, and I have them just call us if, they, if there's any particular problems or questions. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Craig Nichols. We've been discussing treatment options for testicular cancer and management of metastases. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and you have been listening to a special segment focused on men's health on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at ReachMD.com, now featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM-157. And thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Men's Health. For a program guide and a complete list of shows, please visit us at ReachMD.com.